everybody, and thanks for spending part of your day with us. We welcome you to the Scope of Practice podcast as we head deeper into the fall, it being the time of year that leaves turn color and drop from the trees until rejuvenating in the spring, it's just an appropriate backdrop for our upcoming discussion. Some things have to fall from the branches in order to facilitate new growth, which, for our purposes today, are the difficulties facing the behavioral health workforce. Estimates from HRSA show that by 2030, there's an expected 21% growth in the demand for substance use disorder counselors, with only a 3% growth in the supply of practitioners, and an 18% growth in demand for mental health counselors, with an increase of the supply that still falls short at 13%. Why is that important to note? Because at present the time, at this time, the field is already unable to meet the demands and needs for services and is stretched thin. Simply put, although it sounds cliche, we are overworked and underpaid, not receiving adequate supervision, have misconceptions about self-care, struggle with vicarious trauma, among many other concerns. We are also seeing people leave the workforce for different careers that are better suited to preserving their own mental health. All of these things and more tell the story of a workforce in crisis with problems that aren't going away. We don't generally talk about them formally as we tend to buckle up our chin straps and fight on day after day. Today, we're going to focus on the workforce struggles with someone who sees the problems and has no problem naming them in hopes that we can address them and make it a better experience for the workforce. Brittany Lindsay is a licensed mental health counselor in Massachusetts with over 15 years of experience in the mental health care industry. Her passion lies in advocating for systems level change to facilitate mental well-being across the healthcare teams is a crucial component of quality healthcare outcomes. As a mental health consultant, she empowers individuals to understand, heal, and move on from toxic environments when necessary. Brittany's consults go beyond traditional healthcare strategy, encompassing holistic mental health and trauma-informed principles to prioritize clinician well-being. She recently launched the Substack publication called Healing from Healthcare, and you can read more of her work here. To consult with Brittany, reach out to her directly through LinkedIn. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. What an introduction. Happy <laughs> happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So let's kind of jump right into it. All uh, right. In your opinion, what are what you would consider to be the three biggest issues facing the substance use disorder mental health workforce? Yeah, so, you know, sadly, I don't think these are new issues or will really be a surprise, you know, to anyone in the industry. But I think um, one of the the big one really is sort of this dilemma between being a, a 1099 contractor with an organization versus navigating W-2 employment. And, you know, we can dive into that um, pay you know, is a big one, productivity requirements. And I would say, you know, lastly, clinical clinical leadership or quality clinical supervision. Do you think those, uh, you said they've been around for a while, have there been a significant change over the last 15 years that you've seen or those been pretty consistent throughout? Yeah. So, you know, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but I do consult regularly with providers in the field. Um, And, you know, a lot of these coincide with, you know, the evolution of managed care starting in the the 80s and early 90s. And the emphasis on productivity has only really right exacerbated since that time. Um, In my view, it's really only gotten worse over time. I think uh, same with, with quality supervision. I think that was something that we did well years back. Uh, and due to, you know, strains on the system, I think that's an area that we have continued to struggle with. So uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of these issues have been only exacerbated over time with the healthcare, the business, big, you know, managed care business operation of healthcare uh, that we're seeing everywhere. Supervision is interesting because it comes up a lot. And I just did a, uh, a webinar for a, a national virtual provider and of the 100 people that I had in there, much of the feedback was thanks for addressing supervision because it doesn't get talked about enough that people who are serving as supervisors are in bad situations uh, and aren't getting the supervision that they need from uh, other leadership and that it's 
been an ongoing problem and it's only seeming to get worse based on the productivity standards and everything. And there's a demand for supervision training. It's just not necessarily out there. Uh, and you mentioned mm. W-2 wages uh, employee being a, an employee versus being a contractor in a 1099. Can you talk about that a little more just so the audience is clear? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, what we're seeing now that there's a lot more um, emphasis, right, on receiving mental health care. We're doing a pretty good job battling stigma in a lot of ways. Um, and that has opened the door, right, for a lot more companies to sort of be interested in providing mental health care. Uh, these tech platforms that we've seen really sort of blow up and take off since COVID. There's a lot more opportunities for mental health care providers now, which is great. You know, but what we're seeing is sort of this, what feels like a pretty sharp divide. Um, I'll describe it as sort of the 1099 contractor role, which is, you know, exactly what it sounds, right? You're a contractor, you're not a benefited uh, person, you're not eligible for, you know, healthcare, paid time off um, in a lot of situations. You're really just getting an hourly wage for the hourly service that you're providing, which is mostly, you know, cl direct clinical care. Um, those wages tend to be a little bit higher, maybe, um, but the volume expectation, you know, sometimes you can control it, sometimes you can't. So that's one relationship as a 1099 contractor. Mm -hmm. And then th there are kind of more issues with that, but I'll leave that side alone for now versus being a, a true, you know, W-2 employee who's salaried, who has access to accruing paid time off, you know, uh, internal meetings and collaboration um, and things, things like that, health insurance, 401k, whatever. Um, but the, but the salaries tend to be quite a bit lower, right, for W-2 positions, and the hourly rate is higher as a contractor, which puts providers in kind of a, a between a rock and a hard place is actually how one new clinician recently described it to me. You know, I can have more autonomy over my work if I'm a contractor, but if I need health insurance and, you know, access to those types of basic worker benefits, I really need to be a W-2 worker. And when you're a W-2 worker, unfortunately, a lot of times those productivity standards are really, really high and can be detrimental to the clinician's own health and well-being. So again, a rock in a hard place situation is how it feels, I think, for a lot of folks in mental health care delivery. Uh, one thing I see, and I don't know if you see as well, is a lot of people that are, are employees in either a mental health or substance use disorder uh, care facility, many seem to have private practices to get that autonomy, but they would prefer to be a private clinician, but they need that health benefits, mm -hmm. um, unless they're lucky enough to have a spouse who has good benefits. Uh, but I see a lot of people with private practices, and I worry about a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I've said for a long time that I will always, always support clinicians' autonomy in private practice. It, it's crucial, you know, that we have that option. And I think more people should be afforded independent licensure status to do that type of work, whether it's substance use work or, you know, other types of somatic energy healing work. There's so many ways to heal. Mm -hmm. You know, we can do a much better job uh, giving people autonomy there. But being in private practice is not a solution to systems level dysfunction, right? It takes, to your point, you know, it takes a certain level of privilege to be able to be a person who takes on entrepreneurial efforts, business, you know, uh, pursuits, to have the resources, to have a, a spouse that can help you, you know, pay your bills while you're growing a business. Not everybody has access. Even people who become clinicians do not always have access to just starting their own business. And even if you do, you know, as I'm sure you know, in our listeners would know there's a lot of difficulties right and being a small business owner and keeping yeah. that afloat so it's a great i love when people tell me that it works for them but it's not a solution to systems level dysfunction of healthcare. no i think you're uh, absolutely right it's it's almost an escape from systems level health care for mm -hmm. them for their own mental health but it doesn't necessarily meet the need of the 
system that indigent people or those with uh, exactly. uh, uh, who don't have the privilege of having insurance to go to a private provider, you know, those folks are left in a lurch and often receive substandard care based on the productivity demands. Uh, you know, you've got to do this many hours and, and right. clients tend to lose out on that. Um, mm. Have you seen a change in your 15 years in productivity concerns? Um, change, not much really. So when I started, I became um, provisionally licensed as a professional counselor in Maine in uh, 2012. So 13 years ago. And I remember my first job at an outpatient community clinic. Um, I had to meet 26 billables a week. And if I didn't, for two weeks in a row, my pay would start to get docked for not meeting it. So that was my introduction mm -hmm. to productivity as a as both a young and a new clinician in the field. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm not working in an environment where I have to hit productivity today in my life, but I hear from a lot of other clinicians that do. And it's even higher in some places, uh, including in big systems like the VA, you know, I'm hearing clinicians say that they have to see 30 or 35 or offer over 40 patient appointment slots a week. Um, that sounds worse to me than when I entered the field 13 years ago as a clinician. And that brings a couple of things up for me. First, let's talk about what you mentioned with the VA, because NBC did a study on VA in 2019, and uh, the organization's press secretary admitted 30 visits per week uh, per clinician is the goal, with 25 being the standard. But at the time, people were averaging 34 and a half visits per week. Um, so that is significant. Uh, I know that when I came into the field many years ago um, at, at a mental health clinic associated with a general hospital, we had 30 hours a week, 30 billable hours a week uh, productivity, but you could meet that through group. If you had eight yeah. people in a group and you did three groups, that was 24 billable hours or you know or the theory hour and a half group so it was feasible but the same thing if you didn't meet that productivity there was an issue um and a lot of clinicians at that point in time and now don't like group don't feel comfortable in group don't have training so this and that may not be an easier way around it these days they may want to see uh 30 individual clients 30 individual hours or group counts as an hour and, and i was lucky yeah. that it didn't yeah, you know, and that was me too. You know, I was very much, you know, my licensure is as a professional counselor and I don't, I don't want to speak for any other professional counselors, but I like one-on-one -on -one work. That's why I pursued the licensure and the and the education that I did. I only wanted to hold space really for one person at a time, maybe, you know, a parent and a child or one family at mm -hmm. a time also. So, you know, the idea of group work, you know, I, I love that in theory, but in my experience in clinics and stuff, okay, if groups can provide, you know, that additional billing requirement, that's great. But groups are a lot of work to get up and get running, right? You need like a curriculum. Not only do you need the training, right? To yeah. be able to facilitate group process. That's a unique skill yeah. um, that not all folks get education or training in at the master's level or, or below. Um, but also, you know, you need a curriculum, you need to uh, generate interest, you need to get people to sign up, right? So in all those things, you're mostly not getting paid for in my experience anyway when you're working in a clinic so you know i think there's probably ways to incentivize that better for clinicians yep. but when when i was coming through and cutting my teeth in community mental health gosh it was such an uphill battle to try and form groups to that end yeah, and i think uh, when i got into about 30 years ago people were placed in group we did not focus on client mm. uh want so much it was you have if you want to continue with us this is the group you have to go to um so you had some ill fits but you made the best of it thankfully right. i had a lot of training and process as a student my uh supervisor i did groups with my supervisor at during a placement and he wouldn't let me comment on the content my role there was only to comment on the process that was happening mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so it was very difficult but i had a lot of support and i learned a lot Everything difficult is labeled as a significant learning experience anyway. <laughs> um, Groups are wonderful. I think we probably still 
don't leverage group group therapy and group healing quite enough. I um when I was finishing my master's degree, I was fortunate enough to be in a small. I was a a, a client, not a not a, a therapist, but I did my own group therapy uh, with a, a wonderful uh, mentor that I had known early in my career, and it was very powerful. You know, to this day, you know, I think about things that were said in that group that really were helpful to me as a vulnerable, you know, young adult. So um, anyway, we could go on with groups probably, <laughs> but they're, they're so valuable. I think they're underutilized. So here we are, we have these productivity standards and we'll throw out that 25 to 30 hours a week, uh, 25 if you're lucky. Um, what are some of the consequences of, of the need to meet that? Yeah. So like in my mind, I'm like wondering where did that goal come from? Who created who created 25 or 30 or whatever number, you know, is your number at your organization? Uh, how did that get created? Was that done in partnership with clinicians who are doing the work? My guess would be would be no uh, a lot of the time. You know, so what are the consequences? I think we see it every every day. We see the consequences of that. We see high, high rates of burnout, right? People leaving these professions this is not unique to mental health or substance mm -hmm. use care, right? We see this across the board. I'm even I had a few conversations with uh, veterans veterinary medicine professionals facing the exact same thing in animal care that we're facing in human care. Um, people are not well in these environments. And it's largely due to staffing ratio issues and high volume um, work. It's it's just not working for so many people in so many different disciplines now that it's hard to avoid, right? It's hard for us to keep avoiding this conversation about clinician well-being because it has a direct relationship and impact on quality patient outcomes. Um, we cannot not divorce clinician health from patient health. They really go together quite intimately. And there's been you know, quite a bit of research on it. Um, so it's, that's, it's real, you know. And I think we're in a period of time in the field where we have this self-care movement without really, and it's being sold as something that it's not. Um, it's a vacation, it's a day in the spa. Those are all small parts of it. But I think one of the things that's missing and, and uh, because there's not, you can't make a market out of it. You know, it's not a cottage industry is people, should learn to be able to take care of themselves during the work day as well such as somebody with high emotional intelligence how do you mentally prepare for what you're going to do uh, and i think that gets missed um or is just lost because of the, the heavy onus of the productivity standards that, that sit on people's shoulders um i know emotional intelligence is a lot of research it shows how how to manage people but it also and how to manage yourself but what we do has so much emotional blowback, right? We carry the stuff of everything we hear uh, with us. Yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah. You know, um, it, it's both and, right? It's a two-truth situation. We need systems that uh, do a better job, frankly, right? Supporting clinician well-being. And we need to afford people the opportunity, right? To have the autonomy to figure out what it is that their self-care entails. Because you're right, you know, it's not just a bubble bath. It's not mm -hmm. just taking a vacation. Those things are great. But what are, what practices are we able to realistically implement on a daily basis, right? That is regulating to our nervous system. That is leaving us with a feeling of connection that we are incorporating, you know, embodying, processing all of those emotions and stress and vicarious traumas that are part of the job, right? We yep. cannot escape what happens to our bodies in the presence of folks who are working within their own trauma and stress and recovery. So, you know, to some extent, what you're doing, helping people face to face in every moment, it's just as important how you're recovering from that and with that in your own body after every, you know, client or patient interaction. And I think to your point, 
the volume and the pace of our healthcare environments really prevent us from being able to do that consistent self-work. Yeah, I think the 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 need for self-care uh, should be planful in how we we maintain that. But and as the need to be more planful about uh, self-care rises, the ability to do so falls because of the of the heavy productivity standards and all of the other things the documentation, the billing, everything that's associated uh, with working with clients. Uh, and, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I just want to add that I had yeah. like over time created a, my own plan for how I would do that successfully if I were to go back to practicing because I, I haven't been in clinical practice for a few years now. And, you know, for me, it would be seeing not more than four patients a day if we're doing, you know, 60 minutes of, let's say, professional counseling work. Um, for every four hours of that work, you know, I need four hours to do something else that's more regulating to my system where I can give back to me and regulate and calm and process and dissipate um, what's happened in my body. And I have not yet been able to find any employer or system or place where I could do that where I could see only, you know, four hours of clinical work a day yep. and have other duties that allow me to regulate for the rest of the day. Haven't found it. Yeah, I think it's difficult because uh, organizations, especially smaller ones, have ridiculous uh, things that they need to meet to survive. Right. Um, because the yes. organization has to survive too. And when the onus on them is tremendous, it just gets passed down. Uh, I'm sure there Absolutely. are, you know, Places that would love to be able to meet the, that clinician need, but just from their own survival standpoint, it doesn't make it. And I right. could find no productivity standards that are agreed upon, that uh, are set by any major organization. So that it's it really is kind of you're throwing darts at a dartboard. Whatever hits is the number that comes up. Mm -hmm. I think other countries may have done some more research and, and study in that regard, more of like, you know, clinician feedback loop about what's reasonable. I want to say I've heard something like that the NHS in the UK has sort of set a, a, a 20 clinical hour a week. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a maximum at 20, but I think they've done some more work and probably other countries have too about what's actually, you know, realistic for clinician well-being versus what's going to meet our financial, you know, need as an organization. Yeah, I think the NHS does a good job. And in Western Europe, they're much more accepting of using client feedback models that help guide the care so that clients are getting what they need out of that hour. So you're actually being more productive mm -hmm. uh, in less time. Mm -hmm. Because you're meeting exactly what the client needs and what's working best for them. You know, we we talk about meeting clients where they're at, but that's a punchline or a bumper sticker uh, in, in the field. It doesn't really happen. Yeah. Um, you know, the, in, in 2018, the APA had a study uh, titled Surviving Fee for Service and Productivity Standards. Uh, while referencing work at community clinics where missed appointments, premature discharge, uh, that are really common. And they determined that the fiscal responsibility that falls on the agency as a whole, as just what we said, falls on the clinical staff. And, you know, with that pressure on the clinician, and doesn't it also shift the responsibility uh, 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 to prevent harm to the community as well? I mean, the, they have responsibility, you know, organizations take, have things in place to protect the community. Doesn't that uh, fall on when you're putting that onus on the clinician to manage the fiscal part? Doesn't that spit out to the community as well in terms of where they live and yeah, it sure does, right? You're you're putting, you know, if you're putting all the financial risk on the clinician, then you're also risking the lack of quality patient care, right, in the process. And uh, sure, that certainly does cause damage in the form of distrust, right, in the community. Like, you can't go there to get quality care because you might not be seen in whatever time frame or people don't really care about helping you or, you know, it's not uncommon for organizations to receive a, a lot of negative patient, you know, client feedback and, you know, certainly, you know, quality improvement is important in care delivery, but we cannot blame 
people who are doing their best to navigate within mm-hmm. broken systems, right? So truly, you know, if you're hiring a clinician to do clinical work, it is not reasonable nor ethical to put financial risk on that person. You right. know, when I where I come from in sort of the health insurance world, I did a lot of work in utilization management. And the way I was trained in utilization management was you don't worry about cost in utilization management because there's a finance department for that. What you do in utilization management is you worry about medical necessity for clinical care. That's all. We're clinicians. That is what we're clinically evaluating. And finance is handled by the finance department. But we see these lines blurred more and more as time goes on, right? And managed care and the volume. The financial risk is being shifted to clinicians. It's inappropriate, it's unethical, and it contributes to profound moral injury, which only drives people away from the profession, creating bigger workforce shortages. Uh, when I worked in an OTP, that was it was made clear that we held a responsibility to make sure that our clients that had some self-pay or had a copay uh, took care of that. And because the clients didn't, if they fell two weeks and one day behind in any fees, they would start uh, to to taper them down against their will. And so I took that and I just told people, if you've got a couple of bucks, pay it so you don't fall to that point. But that's not wasn't even part of my job. That was to preserve their well-being so that they're not on a roller coaster of, of methadone. But I think it's common uh, and it's it really is difficult and impactful on the therapeutic relationships which we know is most most important. Yeah, and 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 that puts you as the clinician in a position to have the weight of this whole system on your back while you try to preserve the therapeutic effectiveness of your relationship with your clients. And again, how long can people do that? How long can you as a clinician hold the brokenness of the system on your back while you work with individuals, you know, to heal and and recover and thrive? I think it's it's very time limited for most people. When you're looking at somebody that's receiving services in an OTP, they have such significant need to need that level of care that I can't necessarily worry about who's paying the bill, whose insurance right. card is updated and all those things. But we would get notes or emails saying, hey, so-and-so didn't provide their insurance card. And it really was, it hit the brakes hard on what we're trying to do clinically uh, with someone to help them get their needs and desires met. Uh, you talked about the lack of clinical leadership and mentorship to protect the staff. Let's talk about that for a bit because it's a huge problem as we referenced earlier. What are you referring to specifically when you say the lack of of clinical leadership? Yeah, so, you know, I want to be careful here because I have not been a supervisor to clinicians or been in sort of like a middle management type position before. So I want to be really sensitive to Mm -hmm. how difficult those roles are. But when I consult with clinicians and folks who are doing direct service work in various environments all over, you know, mental and substance use healthcare fields, um, I'm hearing this echoed a lot, this lack of clinical leadership or a lack of quality supervision. And, and I think it's about autonomy and empowerment. I think clinicians are experiencing like a really narrow scope of providing care. Like I'm hearing people say, oh, we really have to stick to CBT or we really have to stick to this type of treatment or our notes have to look this way or you can only say these types of things to people, you know, so it's kind of um, a bottlenecking effect of how folks are sort of allowed to show up clinically in the room or how they maybe advocate for changes that are needed in their organization, in their company. Um, there's not a lot, lot of psychological safety embedded in these environments for clinicians to be authentic about what yeah. they're experiencing and what they need and, and helping to get their, their needs met as clinical folks. Again, as we know, is just as important as the care that they're delivering to their clients and patients. So that's what I mean. That's the the sort of yeah. sentiments that I've heard repeatedly in, in recent years. And, and that uh, kind of echoes what I've heard over the years as well. It, the supervision issue is a system issue 
not the individual supervisor issue. Yeah. And there are good and bad supervisors, but in general, they want to do the right thing. But in middle management, you've got all of the responsibility and none of the authority. So they're just sometimes the messenger between admin and 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 don't have time to learn and develop their craft. Uh, yeah. And the excuse they always say, oh, it's not a bill, it's not it's not a billable service. Um, but it's a, it, from an ethical perspective, it is absolutely required. And, and I think the system is failing to meet that. Putting people in supervisory positions because they just got a license or because they've been there the longest and it's just their term uh, or they've managed the difficult caseload and we're good without training that individual to do the best they can. So there, I, I agree that people are at a loss. And yeah. And you know, to do what they can. Yeah. And, and you have so much, you know, expertise in this area, but, you know, you know, clinical supervision is a skill set, you know, that is not just embedded in you because you've been a clinician. It is a very specific type of way of, of working with clinicians in the field. And I was really fortunate, you know, to experience people who did have that that supervisor credential who really wanted to be supervisors. They didn't just do it because they were asked to or because it was a way to make a higher paycheck. I worked with supervisors who really loved delivering supervision to clinicians. And I benefited greatly yeah. from working with people who were doing it for, you know, the, the right reasons. And it just seems like that's more and more a rarity, you know, these yeah. days. Um, that we have a real pipeline or channel to really champion folks who want to do quality supervision. And there's a right way, you know, to foster yeah. that. And, and there's a wrong way, which is yeah. just throwing anyone, any warm body in the mix, which is, you know, what we see so much in our industry in so many places. Yeah, I think they're putting people in positions that they're not prepared for. And that's fixable, right? By prepare, letting them be prepared for that. And just as we talked about a clinician having that responsibility, the fiscal responsibility put on their shoulders. We see that in, in clinical supervisors because if my clinical supervisor is also the individual who oversees whatever raise or I may get, I'm much more likely to hold back my struggles rather than having somebody administratively who determines raises and things like that. And the question being, hey, how, you know, to the clinical supervisor, how's Brittany doing in clinical supervision? Oh, she's very involved. She's doing everything she needs to. I'm I'm very happy with with her progress. Great, you know. And if you have that separation, we're much more likely to say, "I'm really experiencing some heavy countertransference with this person. How do I work around it?" Um, as opposed to, "Hey, everything's fine. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I got to do a little better right. on my notes." Which I would say, you know, if if I were a clinical supervisor, someone who came to me and said, "I'm experiencing a lot of countertransference," I would praise that up and down. You know, right? Like that's amazing that you're able to recognize that in yourself, and you can't yeah. talk about it, right? Like that's an A plus mark too, right? So it's about how we see success in these roles as well. Yeah. When I was a student, I uh, was we had an intake meeting. We we're going through all the intakes for the week, and this one older social worker, legitimate, gives his clinical impression of what was happening with this person, and says, "But I can't work with her because I find her incredibly attractive." And I go to my supervisor, that dirty old man. And he goes, what are you, an idiot? He just saved himself a lot of problems, the agency a lot of problems. But most importantly, that client had a lot of problems because he said he'd like to work with her, but there was something there that said he shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and it was, you know, I went from being a student who thought I knew everything to realizing how much I didn't know. Right. Because that's, that's a ethics. difficult thing. Yeah. That's a very difficult thing to say even if it's true. Yeah. Um, it's so one thing to recognize those things in yourself. And it's another thing to be able to communicate that and have boundaries around it. So yeah, that, what a powerful learning for you. Yeah, and, and this person put it out there like it was nothing. And because I had no idea and nobody seemed to respond a bit other than in my head. And so I was glad that I had somebody to tell me, stop, don't be stupid. Mm. <laughs> but it goes mean? against Things like that go against our conventional wisdom in the world, though, right? right? Like you, your initial reaction was your socially conditioned one. Oh, how could you go to physical appearance? But that that person, that that older man, gentleman, clinician was um, was really attuned, right, to what he was experiencing. And um, yeah, there's a lot to be learned. And he recognized his own humanity. 
Yeah. And I think that that's important that he's not a machine just pumping out clinical hours. Like uh-huh. I'll pick on somebody else, but it shouldn't be this individual. Uh-huh. That's exactly, I think, where where the whole conversation needs to move towards, right? The humanity yes. of it all. I, I did a podcast several months ago with someone that we talked about. How as a clinical supervisor, do you manage the counter-transference that your uh, clinical team may be experiencing? And that's and they can say for them and talk about it and how difficult that is as a task. You, know, you and I spoke privately last month. One of the things we shared was, you know, tremendously positive experiences with our own clinical, uh, receiving our own clinical supervision, you know, both during our training and during our careers. Um, we were both significantly challenged to learn and improve, but also felt supported. The From what you're hearing and when you're doing your consulting, are you finding clinicians who feel they lost that after they finished their main part of their training? Uh, yeah, I think um, folks who are maybe around my age or, or kind of started in the field 10 or 15 years ago had some experience with, with that. Uh, again, I can't speak for everybody. Yeah. I only know, you know, from people who I talk to and consult with and so forth. Um, but I talk to people all over the country and even in different countries and, you know, different states. I try and get a really good swath of uh, input as much as I can. So I know that I'm speaking of a place uh, of not just my own, you know, projection or experiences, but is really grounded in things that are really happening for other people. Um and I think for newer clinicians who have not been, you know, around quite as long, whether they were in other fields or just were too young to sort of experience these environments before, um, it, it just like doesn't exist anymore. I think folks are completing their master's programs and being, you know, kind of thrown into either these environments where there's very little support or resource for things like supervision, learning different types of therapeutic modalities, um, really connecting with with peers, you know, clinical peers and supervision or mentorship. I hear mentorship as a huge need that's not being met, met mm-hmm. for new clinicians. Um, this work that we're all doing takes a lifetime to develop um, deep skill within because we're really just dealing with our own humanity and that of those in front of us. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a lot of time and there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability that is experienced when you're developing these skills. I have said to many people before, um, I was a a professional counselor full-time for six full years, and I felt very green the entire time that I was doing that work. Um, Part of that was my own stuff, imposter syndrome, and things that I've talked about before. Um, But part of it was just what it's like to develop your skill set in this industry. It's It can be wildly vulnerable. And so a lot of newer clinicians in these fields are not getting the type of mental, emotional, clinical support that they need. And some of them are you know, working for these platforms and tech companies that are, again, you know, narrowly forcing them into practicing in ways that they might not be um, aligned with, you know, and their professional ethics that they just learned in school, you know, or the ways that they're still figuring out how they want to work with people. So there's, I think there's a lot of sort of lack of safety for clinicians and being able to really be authentic, to really express, to really learn, um, it's, it's, it's challenging. I'm hearing a lot of challenges and again, can only, you know, really put together that all of these different clinical challenges are, are feeding the exodus from our disciplines. There's an overarching set of, of things that supervisors need to focus on client safety being one. And, and I, and also that mentorship piece, that counselor development. And even gatekeeping, hey, you shouldn't work in this field, you're in the wrong position. And all of the research, I shouldn't say all, I don't want to bring much of the research that I've looked at, talks about best practices for supervision for students or for interns or for those on practicums. It doesn't necessarily continue on uh, into their careers. And I think that that can be problematic because individuals, we can send the message that supervision is not needed. 
once you get, you know, yeah. intense supervision, once you get out of your learning stages and we learn every day. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of like the privilege, I guess, that comes with being an independently licensed provider. Right. But, um, oh, gosh, I needed weekly supervision the entire time after I got my, you know, independent licensure. And I still would if I went back to practicing today. Um, It just is a vital component of delivering care. Like you just have to have some sort of more objective feedback mechanism. I think if you're committed to quality patient care, I think that that has to be that has to be part of it. What are the risks for agencies that don't provide the strong clinical leadership? If they don't provide, yeah. If they don't provide for this for their staff, um, yeah. I mean, you risk really underdeveloping your clinical workforce, right? Um, and that has a lot of challenges. You know, I, I have heard from a lot of folks who are being narrowly trained, and you know, not to throw shade. <laughs> Try not to be a person who throws a lot of shade at CBT, but it's a really good example in our industry of like, okay, cognitive behavioral therapy, really good for like symptom management, you know, really good with certain populations. It's fairly easy to deliver because it does have a a concrete, you know, focus to it in terms of like rating system and using numbers and the triangles and can be very visual, very, very helpful for some people. Right. But it is not a clinically effective tool for every type of person or every session that a person shows up into or every type of healing work that you're going to want to do to help your clients. But this is what we see CBT, CBT or DBT or ACT or I actually love ACT. Um, But, you know, so these narrow clinical um, mechanisms to only deliver certain types of care. That may be easy to administer, easier to train staff on, but there's a lot that's missed when we don't properly, you know, allow clinicians to develop to their own um, orientation, right? Professional orientation is like one of the first classes um, that I took in my master's program in graduate school. And it talks a lot from my memory, you know, about exactly that, you know, that you're going to grow and develop into a practitioner that has, yes, a lot of skills, but a lot of the way that you work is going to be unique to who you are, to your convictions and and how you choose to help people, what you think helps people heal, you know? Um, so the, the sort of one trick or narrow scope of helping clinicians evolve is really, really risky because yeah. there's a million ways to help people heal, you know? And so we really need to afford more autonomy and a wider scope of learning um, when it comes to that. We do see a lot of, this is what we do, so do that. This is the where we right. come from. This is our clinical band. More, more motivational interviewing is probably yeah. heavy in the substance use side. Yeah. And and can be incredibly effective. But I used to use MI the MI skills I had when I was uh, when my son was a teenager just to annoy him because that's really what it so what you're telling me is and he would go nuts because it like mm-hmm. it's difficult with adolescence. But CBT, all of these things work under evidence-based practices with certain people at certain times and under certain conditions, not just, we say evidence-based practice, we tell the clinicians, oh, it's an evidence-based practice, so they use it across the board. And DBT is one that kind of stands out because the focus group that they used and they used for their research was very small and was very homogeneous. The fact that it had been effective for some other populations, that's not what it was tested at initially. so that because we think, oh, this is a best practice, so we're going to use it. Well, it's not a best practice for every client all the time. Every intervention works with some people some of the time under the right conditions. Uh, That's and right. I think, I think we can get lost in that uh, yeah. with the evidence-based practice. And mm-hmm. oftentimes clinicians are fed something that's going to help that, the agency get pilot money or or something to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, the truth is that there is not one evidence-based approach that's better than another, right? It's like the dodo bird, you know, classic. There is there there is not a hierarchy, you know? There are things that have taken off because of the way that they're able to be researched more easily, like these more concrete foundational 
traditional um, practices, but none have been empirically proven to be better, more effective than others. So um, when I'm thinking about other evidence-based therapies, I'm thinking about Gestalt and Rogerian, person-centered, human-centered therapies are just as clinically effective mm-hmm. evidence-based practices as these others that have taken off with so much popularity. So we need to be careful there, right? right. We need to be looking at the whole picture. And when you look at the, the research on why people change, Scott Miller and his colleagues doing that, we recognize that ther- that technique only accounts for 15% of change across the board. Some certain spe- uh, certain interventions may work better with certain people, but across the board, that's the same as the placebo effect. We know it's about the relationship with the client, meeting the client where they're at, and figuring out what's best for them and having them tell us that. Um, and I think a lot of that gets lost. They're taught, but it doesn't necessarily go into practice. So if we don't have good clinical leadership, we lose clinicians. And I don't know why, but I see us losing clinicians to real estate all the time. People That's so interesting. I was just thinking about it. Would it be, you know, advantageous to become a realtor? Is that something a lot of clinicians do? Because that is very relational based as well. Uh, yeah, I see probably in the last year, a lot of people will, will kind of pick at it on the side. But I know at least three people who went and did it full time and said the heck with the field. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've heard a lot of people move into like HR related mm-hmm. roles as well. You know, because those are transferable skills. Um, And we can't be mad at that. You know, we can't be mad at clinicians who look around and say, you know, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So I'm going to take my skills and and fold them into something else where I can feel good about the work that I'm doing or I can provide for my family or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Knowing that we only had a short time for the discussion, is there anything we may have missed that you'd like to add? And there's a lot that we missed, obviously. Well, there's just so much to talk about because, you know, healthcare is just, um, there's so much that needs to be improved. And at the same time, there's so much constant changing. It's hard to keep up with. Um, You know, even like a couple of years ago, I remember trying to really wanting to keep up with all like the litigation and lawsuits that were happening in health. I let go of that a long time ago because there's no way to really just keep up with all the different facets of things that are happening. And when we try to, you know, that puts my nervous system right into dysregulation. So, Mm -hmm. So it's really like a matter of balancing what's inside of you. You know, like, where is your grief? For me, it's like grief and anger, these like big emotional states that I feel about our healthcare system when we have these conversations. And for me, it's like, what's going to help me, you know, navigate through these big feelings that I'm constantly holding. Um, It's not constantly paying attention to all the news. Like that's not what's helpful. It's having meaningful discussions like this. It's building community with people who really want change, who want ethical, meaningful change of our systems um, and focusing on 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 picking apart with nuance sort of one issue at a time and really thinking thoughtfully together and, and working with leaders who are, are willing to do, you know, those sorts of exercises too. Um, so this is going to be ongoing, you know, changing healthcare for the better is 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 not even, you know, going to happen uh, to a lot of extent in our lifetimes, right. you know, this is going to be um, generations of work, but we can do as much as we can now to set, you know, future clinicians and future folks of this system up for success. So that is sort of my call yeah. to action, you know, for everyone whether you are still working in your field or you've moved on to other places to to not completely abandon the things that you've experienced to try and give back in some way, whether you're telling your story, whether you're staying in community, um, whether you're giving good, you know, ethical advice to folks who need it. Um, we all need each other, you know, in community to really to really make effective mm-hmm. change. So um, but yes, there's much, much more that yeah. we could talk about it and happy to do it again anytime. It, it, you know, it's very clear that the system is broken um, and those that work in this system are the victims of that broken system. And we've got to change that. 
We've got to make incremental change while still pushing for larger change, but we've got to start the first domino to fall. We're a workforce in crisis. Mm. Yeah, and the, the more people I talk to, the more clear it is to me that, you know, these are cross-discipline issues, like yep. I said, from veterinary medicine to what we're doing in mental health and substance use work to nursing and doctors and surgeons and everywhere, all pharmacists, all everyone is facing a lot of the same, same, same challenges. And it comes down to profits over people, way too many administrative costs and, and burdens um, and and really taking a huge focus away from clinician health and patient quality care. Um, so yeah, the more that we can have these conversations, you know, the better. And the veteran for my uh, the veterinarian for my pets just closed her small practice and took a full-time uh, staff position at a animal hospital because of the pressures associated with it and difficulty maintaining it. Isn't it remarkable, you know, how we think, we tend to think what we're experiencing is so unique to us, but the more we talk with others, we realize yeah. how sort of universal our struggles really are. Yeah. yeah, that's a nice way to end. That's right. Our universe, our struggles are very universal and we've got to learn to kind of fight for what's right one step at a time get get the positive move forward that we can uh and hopefully build some momentum pretty i want to say thanks for joining us today i really appreciate your time and your expertise and insights um and i look forward to possibly doing it again soon absolutely jeff it was such a pleasure always enjoy having uh, these authentic discussions with you so thanks so much for having me you're very welcome. So that's going to do it for this episode. And I'd like to offer my thanks once again to Brittany Lindsay for joining us. Uh, you can connect with her on LinkedIn. And uh, it's, it's it actually is enjoyable to talk about these workforce issues, even though that's not such an enjoyable topic. Uh, mm -hmm. Join us next time when we speak with Dr. Jerry Ann Utter about her new book, Aftershock, which is available now. And have a great day, everybody. Bye.